Obadiah was a prophet who had an unusual calling. His calling was not to prophesy to Israel or to Judah like uh, most of the other prophets were. Obadiah was actually called to prophesy to the Edomites. The Edomites, E-D-O-M, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. You're familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob and Esau were brothers, and Esau, Esau was actually the firstborn, right? But you know the story, you read up on it in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, you read about how Esau sold off his birthright, he despised his birthright, God hated him for it, right? And the thing was reversed, and Jacob is the one who ended up becoming Israel, right? But, but the, so the, the Israelites and the Jews, they were the descendants of Jacob, and the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. When the Jews uh, were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, the Edomites smiled, the Edomites took pleasure in it. The Edomites even helped it along, the Bible says. They even like, as there were Jews who were trying to escape, they would be provided no shelter nor any quarter uh, by, by the Edomites. They were all turned over and, I mean, it was, it was pretty bad. God sent Obadiah to prophesy to the Edomites. God was working with, God was working on and bringing discipline and judgment to the Jews, not because he wanted to destroy them, but he obviously still had the great plan, ultimately even to bring Jesus through the people of the Jews, right? So even though God was allowing the Jews to be taken captive, God did not enlist any of the other nations of the world to stand aside and mock and take joy in it. There's a lot of lessons you can learn in a Bible study from all of that. So I want to encourage you to come on out on Thursday night and study with me this one-chapter book, Obadiah, which is uh, just so fascinating because it says so much to the spirit of us and and some of the things we have to watch out for, the pride and all that pride can produce and watch out for in our own lives and our own hearts. Right? There's your commercial for Thursday night. In addition to coming out to see if I can get through one book in, in one night. Come out to, to learn all of those great things. Okay? Good challenge to the heart. Okay, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31. Now, here in Matthew 13, we've taken four weeks to go over the parable of the sower, which uh, was a blessing to my own heart. I hope not too burdensome for you to come to church every Sunday for a month and hear about the same parable. And then we took one week, and we talked about the, uh, the wheat and the tares, and that required, because of the way the text is structured, to kind of skip around a little bit. So now we're trying to pick some of it back up. And there are actually six shorter parables here in this section that should be a good, uh, a good time for us in the little shorter time we have on a Lord's Supper Sunday to to go through them all because they're very short parables. So uh, all of these parables are about the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know if you know this or not, but in in English anyway, the, the, the term kingdom of heaven is unique to the gospel of Matthew. It's not used anywhere in any English translation of the Old Testament. It's not used in any of the other gospels. It's not used in any of the epistles. You see kingdom of God a lot. But kingdom of heaven is a phrase that is limited to the gospel that Matthew wrote down for us. And before he got to writing down Jesus' teaching of parables concerning to the kingdom of heaven, there were two important references to the kingdom of heaven early in the book. One of them was in Matthew chapter 3 when, Jesus, uh, when John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was on the scene, and John the Baptist preached to the people and told them what? Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus showed up, Jesus was baptized, Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted of the devil, and when Jesus came out of that temptation, Jesus himself began to preach and teach, and guess what Jesus preached and taught? 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so those words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, the kingdom of heaven is near. That is, the kingdom of heaven is right here. The kingdom of heaven, your time to respond to the kingdom of heaven is right now. Your time to become a subject in the kingdom of heaven is now, right now. Not to be put off, not to be taken lightly. And then, as we go through the narrative of the Gospel of Matthew, you come to chapter 13, and this is not the only place where there are parables. As we continue to go through Matthew, you'll see there are a number of other places where he teaches parables about the kingdom of heaven. But this is the one spot, it seems, in Matthew chapter 13 where Matthew has grouped them all together just to show us uh, how Jesus taught. And, And the Bible teaches that. When Jesus taught the multitudes, when Jesus taught the masses, he taught in parables all the time. They're not, you know, the parables recorded in the Bible, I believe there's no way these are all the parables that Jesus taught. These are just the ones that God had written down for us to read all of these centuries later. But Jesus used to teach the multitudes with these parables because he was teaching them about the kingdom. He said, he said, John the Baptist, and then he preached, you need to repent, 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 because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it makes sense then that Jesus would want to teach people about the kingdom of heaven, right? And so that's what we're learning about, is the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray and read some of this and, and, and explain a little bit more as we learn these parables of the kingdom of heaven today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, dear Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word is powerful. It gives us life. It's, it's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, your word says. And uh, Lord, we need to hear from it. We long, Lord God, to see the kingdom of heaven. We long, Lord God, to experience the kingdom of heaven in its fullness. We know that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're subjects in your kingdom right here and right now. And we have a personal relationship with the king of the kingdom. And we rejoice in that, Lord God. But we know the day is coming when in the twinkling of an eye we'll be changed and we'll throw off in we'll throw off corruption and put on incorruption and we'll just be rejoicing subjects in your kingdom forever. Teach us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, as we experience your kingdom now. Teach us through these parables, Lord, things that we ought to know, things that will strengthen our faith, things that will guide how we live and walk and breathe in your kingdom. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We thank you and pray for your help in learning. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we go. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away. I'm, gonna just, I'm not going to read through this part because this is the part where he explains the, uh, the parable of the tares, the wheat and the tares. So we read through this already. Just kind of go down to verse 44 and we'll pick it up there. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet for a fisher's net that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, 
When it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. Reference to the furnace of fire you saw in the wheat and the tares too, right? There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. So in this two non-consecutive passages of scripture that I read for you here, broken up only by the explanation of the wheat and the tares, there are six parables recorded. Five of those parables are parables of the kingdom of heaven. The sixth one, that last one, is a parable about scribes instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven, which is a slightly different nuance, which we'll cover when we get to it. And uh, I want to say, first of all, that I, I read through commentaries like I always do, in preparing to preach, and there are, there are among people that I respect very much kind of differing interpretations of some of these parables. On most of the parables, they all agree. Every now and then, there's one where they just kind of interpret something a little differently, and some of the things that I read actually surprised me even a little bit. But uh, I, I just want to say that, you know, the key to... Rem- understanding the parables is to just simply read them as plainly as you possibly can, especially the way that they start, all right? Like, for example, the first one says, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And you need to just simply stop there and realize what is this parable describing? It's describing the kingdom of heaven, It's not describing some ancillary aspect of the kingdom of heaven. It's describing the kingdom of heaven itself. So, and and we'll keep that in mind as we go through it. The first four of these parables describe the kingdom of heaven in such a way that they show what I think are beautiful and, and positive, if you will, aspects of the kingdom of heaven. The fifth one is kind of twofold. In the fifth parable, the one about the dragnet, you see that there is also a a very good and encouraging and sort of affirmative and positive aspect, but there's also a warning attached to it, isn't there? When the dragnet is dragged along and it picks up some stuff that really isn't going to be part of the kingdom of heaven, and so it's cast into that furnace of fire where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth, right? And then the sixth parable, as, as I said, is a parable that describes maybe not the kingdom itself, but the servants of the kingdom teachers who teach about the kingdom in the name of the kingdom and and how they're supposed to act. But we're learning today about the kingdom of heaven, right? So let's just dive into this and take these parables then one at a time. Another parable he put forth to them, verse 31 says, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And Jesus describes it. He says, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. I read one commentary that kind of took sort of the negative approach to this and actually described the, uh, and it was interesting, but it actually described this parable of the mustard seed as sort of like describing the, the, the kingdom of God as having like kind of a lot of false people in it. That's what the birds of the air are and they kind of likened the, uh, the birds of the air to the birds of the air in the parable of the sower, which, which in that parable, the birds of the air were the ones that came along and, and gobbled up all of the seeds that fell by the wayside. And, and in Jesus' explanation of that, what he said was that was Satan who came and snatched the word away you know, when it was sown. I, I don't think that you have to look at Christ's parables and look, say, at the parable of the mustard seed and the fact that it mentions birds and just as a rule, 
go back to every other parable that was spoken and say, well, if birds represented Satan snatching the word, the word away there, then birds must represent that here as well. I think the parables, though sometimes maybe they overlap a little bit, I think the parables, each one of them is like, a store, is like an island unto itself, except for the fact that they describe the kingdom of heaven, but they are, they are by themselves uh, a, a story, a teaching. A parable is a story about an earthly, easily relatable and understandable thing that has some spiritual lesson that is taught by it, in this case, about the kingdom of heaven. So what does Jesus say here? He's talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he says it's like a mustard seed. You ever seen a mustard seed? I haven't seen too many mustard seeds, but they're small, right? And, and I read one time a guy thought that he had... Uh, like found some error in the Bible here because there are seeds that are smaller than mustard seeds and so the Bible's wrong. Listen, that, when you hear things like that, just put them out of your mind, their foolishness. When Jesus was speaking the parable, he knew his audience. He knew in the agricultural like kind of society that he was speaking to, perhaps in that part of the world, this was the smallest seed that any of the farmers dealt with in his audience that day, so they understood what he was talking about. The point that he was trying to make was that you have this mustard seed, and what's it say? It says that man took and sowed it in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. So you have here the kingdom of heaven being described as something very, very small, almost insignificant, but... When it is sown, it actually becomes something entirely shockingly different. It becomes something that grows greater and bigger than any of the other herbs who presumably started with larger, more significant seeds. It becomes greater than all those. Great, so great a bush, so great a plant, so great a, 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 a fruit or well, not fruit, but, but an herb-yielding crop that this is, that birds can actually plant their nests right in the branches of it, which would be unusual for that type of spice being harvested, right? The kingdom of heaven is like that. The kingdom of heaven is like that. What's being described here? The kingdom of heaven as we know it and understand it now, started small. What did the kingdom of heaven start with? The kingdom of heaven started with the king. The kingdom of heaven started with the forerunner of the king. He came and announced that the king was coming. And then the king came. And then the king spent time gathering a small band of followers, but it was very, very small. And then the king died. And then the king rose from the dead. And when the king rose from the dead, then what happened to the What happened to his kingdom? It began to grow. And as it began to grow, what else happened? People from the outside, like birds, began to come in and to find shelter in it. Right? Some of you were here. I I never planned this like this, but some of you were here on Thursday night and and we did Amos chapter 9. And this is, I believe, a perfect picture of what Amos was talking about and then what James was talking about as recorded in Acts chapter 15. This is picturing the fact that the kingdom of God started with that single little seed, which is the king, Jesus, and then grew into this thing that was so big that even birds from the outside could flock to it and find their shelter in it. A reference, I believe, to the kingdom starting with Jesus, growing through those first believers among the Jews who believed, and then it was, it was farmed out to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles came in in droves, and now you have the kingdom of God, which is made up and constituted like that. And Jesus is describing this for his disciples. Look with me, sorry to those of you, not really sorry, but look with me uh, at Amos chapter 9. Go back in the Old Testament to Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. I'll try to go through this fast, but Amos 
chapter 9. Verse 11. And you need to understand that the book of Amos was the prophet Amos prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel their destruction. And Amos is fierce. But then the very last little bit of the book, the second part of chapter 9, the Lord describes how he's going to raise the tabernacle of David up. Starts right in verse 11. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Right? In other words, the royal monarchy, the lineage of David is going to be brought back to rule. And we understand that, of course, to be a reference to Jesus himself when he returns to establish his kingdom. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Better translation of that word probably is simply the word nations or the the world or all of mankind. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. So Israel is told, you're going to be destroyed, but the day is coming when God is going to resurrect the tabernacle of David. That is, he's going to resurrect the monarchy. He's going to resurrect the son of David will sit on the throne of Jerusalem again. The kingdom will be reestablished. And it's not just going to be a kingdom of Jews, Israelites. It's going to be a kingdom of all those, Gentiles included, who are of the family of God, who are believing, who are of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks of a glorious future where Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom and all of us together with no difference among us at all. We're all one because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign and enjoy his presence and be with him forever. That's your glorious future. Now, go to Acts chapter 15 and just see how this came up, this very passage of scripture in the life of the apostles. All of this to explain what I think is the essence of the parable of the mustard seed. In Acts chapter 15, do you know what's going on? In Acts chapter 15, well, first of all, we read in Acts chapter 10 that Peter, the apostle, had this dream, he had this vision where a sheet was let down And there were all sorts of unclean animals. And three times this sheet was let down and Peter was told, kill and eat, kill and eat, kill and eat. And Peter was like, no, 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 I've never touched anything like this. And he was told in this dream, what God has called clean, you must not call common. And Peter came to understand that this was a reference to the fact that God was swinging open the door of faith. God was was pouring out his grace and pouring out his spirit upon the Gentiles through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter went and preached in the house of Cornelius and a whole bunch of Gentiles got saved. Then as the narrative goes on, you see the Apostle Paul also becoming involved at the church at Antioch. You read about in chapter 13 in the book of Acts, ministering to Jews and Gentiles alike. And then the Holy Spirit says, separate to me Paul and Barnabas, and you're going to go and you're going to be a light to the Gentiles. You're going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And you read through chapter 14, and you read about how he traveled through, they, Paul and Barnabas together, traveled through Cyprus and then through Asia Minor. And it seems wherever they went, The multitudes of Gentiles came and believed and the Holy Spirit was present and there were miracles and people were saved and people were healed and God was clearly, miraculously, sovereignly, powerfully at work even in the Gentiles right among the Jews. And that created a little problem because the Jews were like, well, listen, they believe God's at work, that's all great, but they need to be circumcised and they need to convert and become Jews, basically. They need to become proselytes and they need to keep the law of Moses. So it says that in the beginning of Acts chapter 15, it says certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So Paul and Barnabas got into this big argument with them and then they said, said, you know, you guys, you go down to Jerusalem and you ask the apostles what this is all about. So when they get down to Jerusalem, guess what they do? They have another big argument, right? About what are we supposed to do about all this? And so finally, Peter, in verse 7, after much dispute, Peter 
tells them the story about what happened with uh, uh, Cornelius' house and how God has obviously sent the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verse 11 says, We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Very powerful word coming from, of all people, Peter at that time and in that place. Then in verse 12, the whole multitude kept silent and listened as Barnabas and Paul declared all the miracles and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And then after they became silent, James, James, who is not the apostle James, who has at this point already been put to death with the sword, but James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, he actually stands up among them and says, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, a reference to his own experience with that vision that he saw, and with, uh, or that Peter had seen. Uh, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, and then he quotes what I just read to you from Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. The rest of mankind. So that all, in other words, God says, I'm going to reestablish my kingdom so that all the birds of the air can fly in and build their nests. The ones who are believing, right? It's a reference to Gentile believers coming into the kingdom of God. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I'll rebuild its ruins. I'll set it up so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by name, says the Lord who does all these things. Not done by man. Done entirely by the will of a sovereign and powerful God. So what is Jesus? When Jesus gives to us the parable of the mustard seed and talks about how it starts as the smallest, tiniest, most insignificant little speck that you can imagine, and then gets planted into the ground, and then it sprouts, and then it begins to grow, and grow, and grow, and it has big, thick, heavy branches, and and perhaps a mustard could, could, could grow so high that you couldn't even reach to the top of it. It started with this tiny little thing, but then grew up so that birds could fly in from the outside and make their nests in it. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is not some exclusive possession of a few people with a particular religious point of view. The kingdom of heaven, by the grace of God, is the possession of people of every tribe, every race, every nation, every significant social strata in all of society and all of the world who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His kingdom started with just him. And by the time he's done, it's going to include every one that the Father has given him. That's the essence of the parable of the mustard seed. Now, next. And we'll go through these like this. Verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. This is another one where some of the views that I read are a little controversial. And and one of the things that people get hung up on is that leaven is frequently, almost always, I would say, used illustratively of things that are negative, right? Like Jesus himself said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? And so people that want to say, well, if Jesus is talking about leaven, then he must be talking about something negative. So what they're talking about here is how a little bit of bad doctrine can infiltrate and fill the entire church and the entire kingdom of God. May I suggest to you that, number one, there is no such rule written down anywhere that I'm aware of that says leaven can't be used by the Lord Jesus to describe anything he wants to describe it with. That's number one. And number two, read the words. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Stop there. Right? The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. That rhymes. Could be a rap lyric, right? There you go. Bob's working on it. He's on that. All right. So, so, but the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. So, 
If you just stop there, you can't tell me that the Lord Jesus is intending to try to show that the kingdom of heaven is evil in any way. Right? No. What he's trying to show is using the properties of leaven, which anybody would understand from that day. Maybe we don't as much. The bread that we eat is usually bread that somebody else has made. Right? Not so, maybe, in that society, in that culture. The bread they ate would be bread that they made themselves, and they understood. Look, Another, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. The idea of three measures of meal is that it's a lot of dough, right? It's a big, it's a big, a tiny little bit of yeast in a very, very great big thing. And what does it do? It permeates the entire thing, right? Until the whole thing was leavened. And what Jesus is trying to show, I believe, is that the influence and the growth of the kingdom of God, and you can see this when you look at the world today, the influence and the growth of the kingdom of God, guided along by His sovereign and powerful and gracious hand, is that even in some of the hardest, most closed nations of the world, you see that the gospel has made little permeations here and little permeations here. And the message, the word, the gospel of the kingdom of God continues to be spread throughout the entire world just like that little bit of yeast filled up that entire bit, that that, that entire mass of dough. You follow that? That's what the kingdom of God is like. Listen, the kingdom of heaven is like that. The kingdom of heaven and, and, and its gospel. I mean, the kingdom of heaven, when Jesus came speaking of the kingdom of heaven, right? What he's talking, the work of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus' day and now is what? It's the preaching of the gospel. That's the work of the kingdom of heaven. What's the work of the kingdom of heaven going to be when this life is over and we're all with him forever and ever? We're just going to worship? Are we going to have jobs? What are we going to do? I don't know everything about all of that. But I know this. I know that the work of the kingdom of heaven right now is to preach the gospel. And here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a tiny little bit of yeast that permeates this gigantic big mass of dough. And you know what? That's what the gospel is like. That's why you and I need... I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. That's why we take opportunities to share the gospel with people. I want to be part of what God is doing. There's no hand guiding that along that's human. It doesn't say anything about the woman guiding it along herself. No. Listen, God is the one who sees that his gospel is preached everywhere. And I want to be part of that. Now, there's a word here in verse 34. Matthew tells us, as so often happens in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, as I've explained before, we haven't seen one of these in a while, but here's one. Matthew is always very careful to show us what? That Jesus is the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. All of the Gospels do that, but Matthew especially will take the time, this is actually the 11th time in the Gospel of Matthew that that happens, um, where, uh, where he will stop and he will say that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Right? So Matthew, in his narrative style, is being very deliberate and careful to make sure that his reader understands that you've read through the Old Testament, you've read through the Bible, you understand the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible. Listen, Jesus is the one that that Bible is speaking about. That's what Matthew means every time he stops to show this. And he says, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. Without a parable, he did not speak to them that it might, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. That's a beautiful thing. So Matthew stops from the explanation of the kingdom of heaven that comes from the parables to show that Jesus' teaching in parables, and thus one of the ways you can be assured that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, is because... The Old Testament said of the Messiah, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So Jesus teach, we're right in the middle of it, very abruptly interrupted and told, by the way, that Jesus taught all these parables is one of the things that proves that he's the Messiah. Right? Hey, listen, there have been some great, and that's one of the things I always say about Jesus, people that don't believe in him. Well, he's a great teacher, you know, but not the Son of God. Listen, Jesus is, of course, a great teacher, but he's more than just a great teacher. I don't know how many great teachers were able to teach the way that Jesus did. Every time Jesus got up in front of an audience, he had a parable to teach them to reveal his kingdom and reveal the kingdom. And they were deep parables. 
There were parables that showed deep spiritual things, and that was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that marvelous to know? It should build your faith. It should build your... I mean, God is using Matthew, writing this down, to make sure we understand that this New Testament, as we call it, is not just some extra thing that people wrote later to try to create another religion, right? This New Testament is the prophetic fulfillment of the old. Which is why, by the way, the final of these parables, getting ahead of myself, goes to say that of the householder brings out of his treasure things new and old, right? Because we are, as students of God's word, we are, as teachers of God's word, to understand and to share things that were taught in the Old Testament and in the New, right? So, now, on to the next parable. Go down to verse 44. Verses 36 through 43 is the explanation of the parable of the tares, which we've gone over. So verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field, and it's pretty plain to see what is there. What is the kingdom of heaven being described as? A treasure. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure, but it's a treasure that's what? It's hidden, right? And, and, And that is true of the kingdom of God. I mean, when Jesus went to Nicodemus by night, didn't Jesus basically describe the kingdom of heaven as something that was hidden? And he said to him, what? Unless a man is born again, he cannot, what? See the kingdom of God, right? So unless a man is born again, he can't even see God's kingdom. It is hidden from the world, but it is made known to those whom the Lord chooses to reveal it by the preaching of his gospel and by the granting of an understanding and open heart. Do you see that? So the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when a man finds it, what does he do? He hides it, right? So it's already hidden, and then the man finds it, and then he hides it. What's the reference to hiding it? You think of the words that talk about hiding God's word in your heart. I think that's what it's talking about. It's like, when the man finds this treasure, what he does is he makes sure it's his and nothing's gonna, no one's going to take it away from him. He hides it in his heart. And then what does he do? He goes out, uh, note the words, for joy, right? He's so overjoyed when he finds this that he goes out and he sells everything that he has and he buys what? Not the treasure, he buys the field. Because when he buys the field, the treasure that was hidden in the field comes with it, Right? So, so, so what is it that he does? He goes out and he sells everything, which is a picture, I believe, of the fact that he takes everything that he is, everything that he has, and he reallocates and vests it all in his life, the field, because he wants to devote his entire life to the service of the kingdom of heaven because he found it, because it was revealed to him. He found it, hid it, was completely changed, bought the field, and now his whole life is about that treasure. That's what Jesus is talking about. There is a picture of a subject in the kingdom of heaven. The person in the kingdom, the person who's a subject in the kingdom of heaven, his life, everything that he is, everything that he has, is about the kingdom of heaven. Next. See, these go along. Again. Verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, here's where I might get into trouble. Here's where, here's where I might get yelled at by some of you later. Maybe not. I tried to like, soften you up with humor before, so, so go easy. Listen, almost always, like even in my Bible, the heading over this passage is the parable of of the pearl of great price. But does the parable say, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl? It says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. I I personally would call this the parable of the merchant, not the parable necessarily of the pearl. Now, most would look, I believe, at this parable, and maybe they're right and I'm wrong. I almost did not preach this sermon today because 
I thought I had to just like make a decision one way or the other about how I would go with this. But so you can see, being a pastor and being a preacher sometimes can be hard like this. I'm just going to give it out and tell you both. Look, a lot of people read this parable and they say that the kingdom of heaven is like the pearl. And it's just like the parable before it. When the person finds it, they go out, they sell everything they have, and they buy the pearl. But there's a nuance that's different, isn't there? The, in, the, in the previous parable, it's the kingdom of heaven was like what? The kingdom of heaven was the treasure that was hidden in the field. Here, the kingdom of heaven is not the pearl. It says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Who, when he finds one of great price, goes and sold that he hadn't bought it. Could it be that what Jesus is trying to show us here is, is completely the other way around? When the kingdom of heaven is like the merchant who seeks the beautiful pearls. Is not Jesus the one who seeks to save that which is lost? Is not God the sovereign one who comes to seek those who are his? Is not Jesus the one who leaves the 99 to find the one? Is not God the one who draws people unto himself? Is not God the sovereign one? Is not God the elector of those who are his chosen who will ultimately receive salvation? The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Did not Jesus do this for us? Did not Jesus give everything that he was to what? Purchase us. We don't purchase the kingdom of God. Jesus purchased us. Do you understand? And so I think when you read this the most plain way, what it says is the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who when he finds that one beautiful pearl that he's looking for, he just sells everything. Right? Gives everything that he had. And he goes and he buys it. Did not our Lord do this for us? Our Lord gave everything. He gave his life to come and to redeem us. I think you can read this parable in such a way where it's understood that the precious pearl is the one who is saved by the merchant who goes out and sells everything to purchase him back. We are the purchased possession of God, purchased with the price, everything, the blood, the body, the death, of his only begotten son. You're free to come and yell at me later if you want about that. But I'm, but I'm telling you, man, I, what, I, what I saw in all of that was what I see in there a tremendous affirmation of God's sovereignty. I see a tremendous affirmation of God being the one who sovereignly elects and saves. And he did so by spending the best that he has the blood of his only begotten son to redeem us from sin. Okay, I'll be in my office later. You can come and holler at me when I'm done. All right, now, verse 47. I don't mean to be flippant about it because there are a lot of people who frankly are smarter than I am who kind of take the more traditional like look at that. And like, I even, there was even a song we used to sing years ago that, that described Jesus as the precious pearl. You know, But, but the kingdom of heaven is, is like a merchant, it says here. Not the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who goes out and buys a pearl. Right? All right. Well, there you go. There's my thinking. All right. Now, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. I should have had Nelson queued up with the dragnet sound effect, right? The, 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 what was that? How's that go? Dun, 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 dun. Is that dragnet? All right. Okay. All the people like 50 and older know what I'm talking about. The rest of you have no clue. Um, so anyway, we have uh, a dragnet is like a fishing net, except it may be a little more heavy duty. It was sunk down to the bottom, maybe between a couple of ships. It was sunk all the way down to the bottom and literally dragged to the shore. A great way. Instead of throwing out the net and pulling the net up into the boat, the net was thrown out into the water, and then it was dragged all the way to the shore. And so what would you get if you, did, if you fished like that? You'd get a lot of stuff that wouldn't make for a very good fish fry that evening. Unless, unless you were careful to sort it out, right? See, this is the one parable that has like a little warning with it, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that's cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and what do they do? They sorted it out. They gathered the good into the vessels and they threw the bad away. What does this show us? 
while we've seen all these beautiful aspects of the kingdom of heaven already, that it's like the mustard seed where everyone in the world who believes, Gentiles included, come and find their shelter in it. It's like leaven in that just a little bit. It starts off at a little bit, but then permeates the entirety of society. We've seen that it's like a treasure hidden in the field that somebody finds and just their whole life becomes about having that treasure because of the joy in their heart. We've seen that it's like a merchant who will go out and sell his best and devote everything to purchasing that one pearl. Here we see sort of a little warning along with this one, and that is that the work of the kingdom of heaven, if you will, this preaching of the gospel of the kingdom does what? It brings in the true and it brings in the false. We've seen this in the parable of the sower, right? Because you see in the parable of the sower, you have the... uh, uh, the, the seeds that are planted and it sprouts up the weeds and you see the seeds that are planted that sprouts up the trees with the good fruit, right? And the, the, you have the ones who are the cares of this world, drives them away and everything. You saw the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? How in the world you have the, you have the wheat which are the representative of those who are truly saved. You have the tares which are representative of false converts, I believe. And you have them growing up side by side. And, and you're told what? Don't mess with the tares because you might pull up the wheat as well. This is similar to that. Be forewarned. The gospel of the kingdom pulls in those who are saved, but it pulls in people that aren't too. And this is where we have to be careful. There are people who attach themselves to the kingdom of God for various reasons. In the wheat and the tares, they were literally things that were sowed by an enemy. That may not this parable may not necessarily be limited to that. Sometimes people are involved with a church because they have to. They're born into it. Their parents make them go, whatever. Sometimes people like a certain aspect of it. There's programs for their children. There's nice things to do. Sometimes people get attached to a church because they like the society that it is. You know, it's nice people. It's people that, like, they're nice to hang around with. They're friendly. They don't do a lot of the things out there in the world that I find offensive and everything else. They're good people. And in, in, in churches, in the, the kingdom is like that. But be careful. Be careful. The true kingdom of heaven is made up. Listen, listen. The real kingdom of heaven is made up of the fish in that net, not all the other stuff that gets dragged in. The true kingdom of heaven is made up of those who are truly believers on the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been humbled and brought to repentance in the the knowledge of their sin by the preaching of the word, and they have turned to God. They have turned to Jesus Christ. They have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They have received him. They have been born again. They have been sealed by the Holy Spirit under the day of redemption, and you can see it in their lives by the fruit that they bear. Amen? So we need to examine ourselves, right? And we need to be careful and recognize that one of the facets of the kingdom of heaven is that it drags in more than just what is really part of the kingdom of heaven. But what's going to happen in the end, in the end, in the end, when it's dragged to the shore, it's going to be sorted out. And God's the one that's going to do that. The angels will come forth. Second time in this chapter we're told this, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just. I didn't know we were saved by being just. Hmm. That almost sounds like he's saying we're saved by works. It's not what he means. We are just in that we have had the righteousness and the justice of Jesus Christ credited to us when we believed. God, as Paul said in Romans 3, God is just and the justifier of him who what? has faith in Christ Jesus. Who are the just? Who are the just who are redeemed? The just are those who have been justified by the justifier. And the justifier is God, and the justice is the just righteousness of Jesus Christ by God's grace credited to them when they believe the gospel. Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to the one who has faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the true fish in the dragnet. Do you understand? Examine your heart. We want everyone here. 
We want everyone to be part. We want everyone to be welcome. But we especially want the reason that you're here to be because you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're here because you're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you desire in your heart to worship and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And you desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And your longing, your real longing and your real hope is for your future with the Lord Jesus Christ. Examine your heart. Right? It's not an examination of the heart to find sinlessness. Examine your heart. Within 10 seconds, you're going to find sin and it's going to be like, how could I... Listen, that's not the point. We're saved by His grace. We're not saved by sinlessness. We're saved by His sinlessness, not by our own. You're saved by grace. But listen, examine your heart and make sure the reason you're part of all this, make sure there is because you love Him who loved you first. You have a desire to glorify Jesus. You have a desire to learn of Him. You have a desire to walk in His ways. You want to see Him lifted up and exalted. You're humbled. You know it's not about you. You know without Him we're nothing. You just desire to be abiding in the vine. Right? You examine yourself to make sure you're part of the true. You pray. You talk to other believers. You don't doubt yourself. You don't beat yourself up. You just carefully examine And if you need to come to Christ to receive salvation, come to Him. Jesus says, come to me. Lay all your burdens down. Humble yourself. Repent. Come to Jesus. Believe and receive Him. Receive salvation. Cry out to Him. Pray to Him. Ask Him. Receive salvation from Jesus. And then trust Him. Walk day by day, trusting in Him remembering what He has promised you and remember that He is faithful to deliver it and to deliver you. All right, stand up with me. That's enough for today. I didn't get to the sixth one. We'll come back to it. Dear Lord God, we see Your kingdom in these parables. We see your kingdom. We know that you are the king. We know that the way into your kingdom is only through you and is a narrow road. We know that your kingdom is a kingdom of joy. Great joy. We know that your kingdom is a kingdom for all from every nation who come through faith in Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, for all of your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice, Lord God, would be a true believer in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this time we have together here today to consider these things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.